Well, we thank the Lord for his continued graciousness to us, his kindness to us, that he would bring us together again this morning to sing his praises, to bow before him in prayer, and to bow trembling now before his word. And I would invite you to join me in your Bibles in John chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 41. Our commitment here is to walk through the Word of God one book at a time, one passage at a time, uh, letting it confront us as we do that. Our hope and our prayer in that is that we would be protected from the temptation to pick and choose uh, which parts of His Word we will be confronted with, uh, that we'll have to face, that we'll have to bow down before. We seek to bow down before everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That doesn't mean that on occasion there aren't good and right reasons to pause in a particular study and to consider what the Bible says about a particular subject or topic. And sometimes we've done just that as we have come to Resurrection Sunday. We have taken the occasion to stop and to focus on the resurrection of our Lord. This year, it just so happens that there is no need to divert from our study of John's gospel in order to do that. Because the things that Jesus has been describing and continues to describe in our passage this morning have very much to do with his work on the cross and the significance of the resurrection. And so this morning, we simply continue in the study that we've been engaged in. For two weeks now, if you've been with us, you have been hearing from him in what's been called the bread of life discourse. He has fed the 5,000, and now they ask him questions on the following day, and he's interacting with a crowd in Capernaum, and we call this the bread of life discourse. Uh, coming to this morning, we're in verses 41 to 59. It's a rather large section. Uh, and we can think of what he's going to do here as something of both a summarizing and a concluding of what he has been saying. I say summarizing because, as you'll hear in just a moment, uh, much of what we're going to find this morning, uh, we have already considered at length in the last couple of weeks. And for that reason, if, you, if you're visiting this morning, if you've not been with us here in recent weeks, uh, this, is, this is a good time to, to be here and to hear because he's going to sum up what he has been saying uh, previous to this. Uh, because of the time we've spent on many of those things, as we're hearing him summarize his arguments, we'll pass fairly quickly through some of those. Um, what we're going to see as well, though, is that he's doing more here than just summarizing what he's already said. He, he is doing it in a way that draws his words to a conclusion. And given the nature of the conclusion, we could say he's drawing his words to a climactic end here. We'll do two different things in our walk through our passage this morning. First, and in verses 41 to 51 in particular, we'll identify those ways that our Lord is summarizing what we've heard him say already. Uh, but then secondly, we'll take note of several things that Jesus adds to what he has said as he's drawing this confrontation to a close. Specifically, then, we'll notice three such additions in what he says. Let's begin by hearing uh, let me read John chapter 6, verses 41 to 59. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John 
John continues in this way. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you weren't with us in the past couple of weeks, you you may not realize that many things that Jesus emphasizes here are the main points he's been making for the past 40 verses. He was making these points visually when he fed the 5,000, and he's been declaring many of these same things since this conversation began in verse 26 with this particular crowd. What I'd have us do as we begin is to notice three of those ways that he is coming back to what he has already said and summarizing and concluding it. And as we notice these, in in large part, we'll dwell rather briefly on each one because of the time we have already spent on these ideas in previous weeks. But the third one we'll need to look at a little bit more carefully. The first we see in verse 44. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, that would be an excellent one-sentence summary of last week's entire sermon, wouldn't it? And the reason is that that's the gist of the whole section that came before this, verses 35 to 40 from last week. And it's also the direct counterpart of what he said in verse 37. You can compare that, verse 44, to what he says in 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is just the other side of that. No one can come to me unless he draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, and as we saw last week, these are statements concerning absolute dependency on the part of human beings, on the part of all mankind. We are absolutely dependent upon God if we are to be rescued by him. We can never come to him on our own. He must work to bring us to himself. And so if I am one who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and responds, puts my faith in him, comes to him, I'm not only thankful for the salvation that he is giving me, I'm eternally thankful for the merciful work that he did to open my eyes in the first place. The second thing that we're hearing here that we have heard for a number of weeks now is summarized well in verse 47. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. We heard that last week too, didn't we? Verse 35, Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's another way of putting that. We've also heard him say this quite exactly uh, back in chapter 3 to Nicodemus in John 3.15 when he was speaking to him. Uh, this has been a theme already. And so it's a reality that we've looked at quite a bit, and thus we're simply reminding ourselves of here as we come to this summary. However, I would encourage you to keep what we just read in verse 47, keep it in mind as we move forward here in a few minutes. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Just tuck it away, because that's going to help us understand what Jesus is getting at here in a few minutes when he begins to talk about feeding on his flesh, this mental image, this idea that so scandalizes those who are hearing him. I'll give you just a foretaste of that. Take your finger, perhaps, or maybe you can do this well, uh, looking at two places at once, but compare the end of verse 47 there to the end of verse 58. Verse 47, end of the verse. Whoever believes has eternal life. End of verse 58. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You need to notice that, and we'll see more about that when we get there. Uh, thirdly, the third sort of restatement that we have here is one that we'll spend a bit more time on than we did on those first two. It's the statement that we read in verse 51, where Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Jesus had finally gotten this direct and clear with them back in verse 35. He had been correcting them, calling them to, a, to an eternal perspective to understand their true need, and they had still misunderstood him. They had still said, Lord, give us always this bread. They're hoping for a reproduction of the manna miracle. And he finally said in verse 35, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. And he restates that here. And you'll remember that he, what he was doing then was he was contrasting that offer of himself to the manna that God gave to the Israelites in the wilderness during their wandering years. That had been bread of food provision, physical provision for sustenance in the wilderness. It came from the sky. 
They had gathered it up. They could bake it. It had been bread. But that manna was not, as Jesus is describing it here, it was not true bread. It wasn't the true bread. When he made that comparison in 32, he didn't mean that the manna was some kind of fake bread. It wasn't gluten-free bread that came down and was used. No offense to you gluten-free bread eaters. But he's not making a comment about the quality of the bread when he distinguishes it from the true bread. He meant it was bread that did what physical provisions are intended to do. It satisfied in its way. It sustained life. But all of that, very naturally, um, only partially and temporarily, as our provisions in this life do. That bread gave no spiritual life at all. And even the physical life that it provided was temporary. And he restates that very plainly here in verse 49, doesn't he? He simply says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. It got them through another day. It didn't grant them life. They still proceeded to die. But he has been sent from heaven, verse 51, as living bread. What he called the true bread, the living bread. The bread, a provision that God's giving into this world, but a provision that brings with it life. And this really is profound. God is saying much more to us here than simply what was going on with that manna in the wilderness. He's making a statement, you could say, about the whole of human reality here. The whole of your life on this earth. Because the point that he's making about the manna is true about every physical provision that he gives us in this life, isn't it? He's telling us something about all the ways we are physically provided for. Which, in fact, if you think about it, says something not just about our provisions, but about our needs themselves. Each of the ways God provides for us in this life are good and we need them, but they're all temporary. They're all insufficient in and of themselves for life. They all point toward an ultimate provision, which Jesus is saying here, I am the true bread. They all point to an ultimate provision, which is God himself. And that means then that all of our needs in this life are doing the very same thing. They're real needs, but they're all needs that point to an ultimate need for God himself. He is God. I am his creature. I depend on him utterly. I need fellowship with him if I am to live. In other words, we can take all of that and say very simply, what we're finding here is God can give me all the things. He can give me all of his stuff. But if he doesn't give me himself, I die. I will die. We have many needs, don't we? But in the ultimate, in the end, we have one need. We must have fellowship with our God or we die. And Jesus is making that plain here in the way he's laying this out. But you notice, it's not only the ultimate need that he's declaring here. He's doing much more than just declaring the need. He's making that obvious. And at the same time, he is saying that he is the provision for that need. That manna fed them for, the day, for a day. 
but their deepest need for life, it had no way to touch. But I, in fact, do. I touch that need. I am the solution for the deepest of needs. It's what this whole thing has been about. And if you think about it, it's what he said in less direct terms to the woman at the well in chapter 4, too. It's evidently what he told the Samaritans after her. Because after he was finished spending two days with them, their conclusion was, this is indeed the Savior of the world. My friends, this is the message that Jesus came and preached. This is what he came to tell us. He was the wisest man to ever walk the earth, and he certainly brought a great deal of wisdom, but he wasn't a philosopher as he came. He was the most righteous man ever to live. And we can learn plenty of ethics from him as we hear his teachings, but he didn't come as an ethics teacher. His message was this. This was his message. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This was his message. And as he draws all of these points he's been making to a conclusion, it's quite climactic. He's forcing them to a certain decision about him and about their needs and about what relationship might be there. Now, in our passage this morning, we're hearing these uh, conclusions in the confrontation. We're hearing him bring all of these things to a point. But he's also adding new things in as, he is, um, as he's completing this interaction with them. He brings in new thoughts and ideas, and he doesn't do it changing the subject. They're very much on point. And yet they're things he's not yet done in the conversation. I said at the beginning we'd see three of these. What are these things? Well, the first one comes even at the very beginning of our passage. Jesus adds here a powerful visual to his indictment of them. We've already heard him say in verse 36, their problem is that they do not believe. That's their problem. And it's quite ironic. The reaction that comes here in our text is actually a powerful confirmation of that. I'd have you look at verse 41 and verse 43. We're told in verse 41 that the Jews grumbled about him because of what he said. They did not like his response. They wanted bread. They wanted another miraculous sign. And all he did was point to himself. And in response to that provision that he offered and was telling them to be content with, in response to that, they grumbled. Jesus says in verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. Now, if you know about the accounts in the Old Testament of the Israelites back when God gave them manna in the wilderness, then this word grumble will be ringing a few bells, won't it? Grumbling and complaining is what characterized the whole lot of them the entire time. And get this, it characterized them even when God gave them the miraculous manna itself. These Jews with Jesus are looking back in awe and wonder at the manna that was provided and saying, give me that manna that I would believe you. They wanted to duplicate that. And yet when their forefathers received it, they were not content with it. 
Numbers 11, verse 4, And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They received the manna, and they grumbled. These Jews are being offered, not the manna, the true bread, and they're grumbling. And by the way, do you remember what that grumbling got them? That unwillingness to be content and satisfied with God's provision? It got them barred from entering the promised land. And look, if even the manna in that account, in that historical event, was itself pointing to a greater reality, what are the chances that the promised land isn't doing the same thing? When God declares the truth back then to them of what their grumbling revealed, he puts it this way. He recounts their grumbling in Deuteronomy 1.27, and then in verse 32 of that chapter, he says this, Yet in spite of my word, you did not believe the Lord your God. For these Jews then, Jesus exposing their grumbling hearts, reveals them to be playing the part of their forefathers who were not allowed to enter into the promised land. And explicitly, whose condemnation came because in spite of the word of God being given to them, they did not believe. That's the first thing that our Lord adds here to what he has already said. He's adding a powerful visual of the truth of his indictment. The second and third things that he adds really belong together in a sense. He adds two explanations as to the, you could say, the why question. Why do they need him? Why do they need him as this provision? One comes in verses 45 and 46. He is necessary provision in that he is necessary for our true knowledge of God. He is necessary if we are to truly know God. Look at what he says beginning in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Notice what he's just done here. He reminds them of the prophetic words of Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 54, 13. When God said through his prophet that one of the, um, and one of the promises that God is making there is that in the day of fulfillment, it's going to involve an expanded teaching that comes from God himself. You will be taught of God. And Jesus says here, firstly, he says, I am essentially related to that promise. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, what they do is they come to me. They all come to me. So the effect of God's divinely blessing our minds and leading us to his salvation will be that we will come to Jesus. But the real kicker here is verse 46. Verse 46 takes that idea of being taught by God or of having heard and learned from the Father 
And it makes a crucial clarification. It's the clarification that teaching from God, uh, that, like he just mentioned, is not something that is received through a person's direct, personal, you could say mystical experience. No, such knowledge, true knowledge of God, such further revelation of God has one source, one source, and it is in fact Jesus Christ himself. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. Don't misunderstand, he says. There is only one who has seen the Father in order to be able to reveal him. All those who belong to God will be taught by God, and Jesus is the teacher. He is the, you could say, he's the only one with the qualifications to teach that course. Jesus Christ is the mediator of such knowledge. It's exactly what John wrote in chapter 1, verse 18 of this gospel. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I told you then, everything we're going to find in this gospel is summarized and represented in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. It's him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he teaches. He ascends to heaven. He sends the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit sent by him might bring our minds to the Lord Jesus, might be reminded of everything that Jesus has said. He is the mediator of true knowledge of God. So, so far, here's what we have as he's, as he's bringing this to a close and adding. Uh, we have our Lord saying, to be discontent with me is to distrust the Heavenly Father. And if you're skeptical about it, just look back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, Jews, and see what happened. Secondly, to be discontent with me is to refuse to be taught by God. In other words, it's to not know God if you find yourself discontent with me. Thirdly, and finally this morning, Jesus adds some clarity as to how God will provide for them through him. I mean, how is this going to happen? They're on the other side of a great number of significant events, aren't they? And from this side of things, 2022, we could say that what he's going to add here in this third element is he's going to add some clarity pointing to the crucifixion. Let me reread verses 52 to 59 for us. And you'll notice the this is, there's a controversy here. The Jews disputed among themselves in verse 52. It's arisen because of that last word in verse 51. What's the last word there in verse 51? It's, it's one thing, it's a metaphorical sounding thing to say, I am the bread. It's a whole other level to specify, the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's what he's just said. My flesh. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, there's something about what our Lord is doing here that I think is fairly obvious, and there's something less obvious, and we need to see them both. I would suggest, I think it's fairly obvious, that Jesus is intentionally pushing on their surprise and the scandal that is erupting in their mind. Can you tell that? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And he responds... And he does not placate them in his response, not even a little bit. Instead, he replies with, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. He's not trying to ease that uneasiness. He's intentionally forcing the scandal upon them. And it's quite a scandal. Remember, these are Jews we're talking about. They're forbidden from eating Meat with the blood still in it. They're certainly forbidden from drinking blood. And he's telling them they must drink his blood if they are to have life in them. This is a pretty clear challenging of their skepticism. And I think that's obvious. And that fits. Jesus tends to do that. He is not afraid of controversial reactions or even of confusion. Because often he uses the confusion to bring further clarity. What's less clear, though, in this is... Why is he doing that? Are we saying that he's being provocative for its own sake? Is Jesus a provocateur? And that's what we're seeing here. I think the answer is clearly no. But let's take it even a little bit deeper as to why we might think he's being provocative uh, intentionally. And this one, this is another example in the text. But this also, I think, starts to help us understand what he's doing. He switches words for eating. Here, as he's going through, we capture the word change in the ESV. It moves, if you notice, from eat to feed on. Verse 54, it changes to feed on. I don't know that that helps us unless if you're thinking when you hear feed or feeding on, if you're thinking of something like an animal, now that's helping you to understand the, the word he's using before verse 54 is the standard generic word for eating. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. But starting at verse 54, the word he's using, it's the word trogo. It is a very unusual word for eating. It's far more of a visual word. In times before this, it was only used for animals, referring to the noisy way that they ate. And it came to be used of humans by this time, but it was not their standard word for eating. It's a very visual, uh, literal word. Uh, People have suggested translations that would have an audible flavor to them, like crunch or something like that. Leon Morris says, it's a startling word in this context and stresses the actuality of the partaking of Christ that is in mind. You see how that would be accomplished with a very audible, visual word? So again, why? What is he doing here? Roman Catholics will take this and say, see, 
He's describing the necessity of the Eucharist. Saving grace is imparted by the taking of communion. When I drink the cup, I'm drinking his blood. I must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they would try to come to a place like this. I completely reject that understanding of what he's saying here for a number of reasons, not least of which is that it's completely unnecessary. Uh, But one clear reason in the text can be seen in what we did when we compared the ends of verse 47 and 58. Do you remember that? Whoever believes has eternal life, into verse 47. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In other words, what he's describing here in this new way he is putting it to them is not a different need and a different reality than what he has been describing all the way along when he has told them, come to me and trust me. Put your faith in me. He's describing this in terms of a participation in him. And that was already conveyed in the word believe. The way we must partake of him is to be united to him by faith. And for this reason, Augustine famously made the simple statement, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. But again then, what is he doing with this language? Notice that it's language that focuses on the necessity of his physical body, doesn't it? And that is very much what comes to the surface as he even changes his verb for eating to focus on something physical. He's directing our attention indeed onto his physical body. And while he's not saying that we literally consume his flesh, he is making something clear here that this union with him, this participation in him, is going to have to have something to do with his actual physical body. In other words, he is not just describing some spiritual reality by itself. What he's describing and what he's calling us to has some essential element in the physical world, and it relates to his actual physical body. There is a necessity here. And what is the essential element? Well, let's see. Let's ask Jesus that in this passage. What is he telling us here? That essential element will involve in some way the breaking of his body and the flowing of his blood, won't it? Verse 54, he's going to give his flesh in verse 51. And the flesh and the blood will be spoken of separately in 54, which many have noticed and and made clear. When you do that, when you speak of a thing's flesh and blood separately, you're talking about a thing that has suffered death. You're talking about a violent death, the pouring out of blood. He's describing his body in a way that inescapably speaks about death. So what is he adding here? He's beginning to reveal that the only way we will be able to participate in him, to be united to him, what must we do? Well, we must believe in him to be united to him. But that's not enough. He also must offer his life and surrender it up to death. If I believe in him and he does not pour out his blood, then there's nothing gained in the union. In other words, we could rephrase the end of verse 58, where it says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We're rephrasing that when we say, he died that I might live. 
Today is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And here we come to the crux of the matter. Jesus is speaking to a people, and we belong in that group, that are in an absolutely hopeless state. We have sinned against a holy God, a God of perfect justice, a God who will, he says himself, will by no means clear the guilty. And Jesus is coming to us with a claim that he brings provision that brings true life with it. We will not die. And in keeping with this whole chapter, he doesn't mean simply physical death, but to continue with this language, he's talking about true death. It doesn't mean that physical death is a fake death. It didn't mean that that bread was a fake bread. But death itself is pointing to an ultimate reality. True death is separation from the giver of life itself, the giver of life himself. Our sin separates us from him by necessity because he is glorious and righteous and holy and pure. But Jesus comes in here and claims that if we are in him, we will live forever. He claims, in other words, that he is the way to the Father. And, and that that way is going to require his violent death, the shedding of his own blood. And in terms of the Passion Week, what we celebrated last week, two days ago by our count, by the way, we count days, Jesus did shed that blood. The question that we answer this morning is a question of acceptance. Did the Father accept that atoning sacrifice. And the truth of God's word, the truth that history itself confirms, is that the Father demonstrated his acceptance of Jesus' atoning death by raising him from the dead, by bringing him out of the tomb. We read in Acts 13, 32, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. My friends, just think this morning about this final new addition to the picture that we've said Christ is bringing into the conversation. When we confess belief in Christ, part of what we're affirming is a very physical thing. We're claiming that the body of our Lord was a perfect, spotless lamb sacrificed to God, and that it served the purpose of atoning for sin. Romans, the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. We are saying that Jesus Christ of Nazareth gave his life in our place, that it was pleasing to the Father, that it was accepted, and that, as it's put in Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. This is what we are saying as we put our trust entirely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's worth stating very clearly like that this morning. Because in doing that, in stating that and affirming it, we are confessing the very necessity that is scandalizing this group of Jews at the synagogue in Capernaum that day. 
Is your trust, your hope, your chosen rest on the sufficiency of the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross? All of our eternal hope rests on this. The passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is well known to many for very good reason. Listen to the reasoning of Scripture on this point. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. How can we be sure? How can we rest with joy and hope? The answer is in the empty tomb. And as you pray with your families today, as you eat meals together today, as you look up at the bright, shining sky today, our encouragement this morning is to sense, to really sense what was at stake and to sense what it will mean to us for all eternity that on that morning Christ arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He triumphed for us as our champion. He triumphed where we could not. He triumphed where we would not ever where we would lie in hopeless failure were it not for the merciful, gracious kindness of the triune God. Therein lies the hope and the joy of this day. And therein lies the peace that surpasses understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we marvel this morning at the unsearchable wisdom of your plans for your people and for the display of your glory in all its fullness. We praise you, Father, for the love on display in the giving of your only Son. We praise you, Jesus, for the love on display in the willing, even joyful, laying down of your life for your friends who were your enemies when you laid it down. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for the ways without number in which you patiently and determinedly lead us toward Christ and renew our hearts after his image and remind us of who he is and what he has done for us. And as you lead us to find our rest in him over and over and over. Today at its essence, is a day in which we thank you, God, and celebrate the wonders of your plans. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.